Now, I have the pleasure to introduce you, uh, Mr. David King. David, he's the senior vice president for Next Day. Uh, David joined Next Day in March 2022 as the senior vice president of policy corporate affairs. David has over 40, 40 years of international business experience in the energy sector, recently uh, retiring as the president of the Wood, um, Wood Fiber Limited. In his role as the president, uh, Ken, um, Mr. King was accountable for the delivery of uh, 20 billion liquefied natural gas uh, export to the British Columbia, Canada, and was directly responsible for the uh, building of the LNG facility and the creation of thousands of jobs, training, economic opportunities, and involvement in the project. Mr. Keen um, has held a senior executive role at um, BG Group, PLC, serving as the Vice President of Policy Corporate Affairs for the America's Global um, LNG Region. I also served as the Vice President of Chief Administrative Office for Dean uh, Energy. Please help me welcome Mr. Davis. Carbon change 
concerns by capturing and sequestering carbon dioxide during the liquefaction process. CCS, or carbon capture and sequestration, uh, is a revolutionary technology that can significantly reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Rio Grande LNG, with the implementation of CCS, aims to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions by more than 90%. And we actually think we can get to about 95%. Through our proprietary CCS process, we have obtained nine patents and are also in discussions with global companies to offer our CCS services globally. Now let's talk about careers in the energy industry. I understand that many of you might not think that the or might think that the industry is old-fashioned or even dying. However, I'm here to dispel that, that interpretation. Consider all of the products and technologies that require hydrocarbons to be manufactured. Your cell phone, for one. You wouldn't have this if you didn't have hydrocarbons. There are also TVs, plastics, medicines, cosmetics, and cleaning products, among many others, that all of these rely on hydrocarbons for the manufacturing. As another example, I would also like to discuss food production and how that has changed over time and why the change is important. I recently read a book entitled How the World Really Works by uh, an author called Vaclav Smeal, who is a professor at the University of Manitoba. And yes, I spent a lot of time in Canada. In his book, he states that over a period of time, pre-industrial rates of food production rose. But rates of producing enough food to supply three, three people per hectare, or about two and a half acres, were not achieved until the 16th century. And only then in intensively cultivated areas of China. In Europe, they remained below two people per hectare until the 18th century. This stagnation in feeding capacity during the long course of pre-industrial history meant that until just a few generations ago, only a few or a small share of people, particularly the elites, didn't have to worry about whether or not they had enough food to eat. There has been no recent transformation, such as increased personal mobility or a greater range of private possessions, that has been so existentially fundamental as our ability to produce year after year an excess of food supply. Today, most people in affluent and middle-income countries worry about what and how much to eat. They don't worry about whether or not they're going to have enough food to survive. The United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization estimates that the worldwide share of undernourished or malnutritioned people decreased from about 65% in 1950 to 25% in 1970 and to about 9% by 2019. Which means that the rising food production reduced the malnutrition rates from two and three people in 1950. Think about that. Two and three people in 1950 to one and 11 in 2019. This impressive achievement is even more noteworthy if expressed in a way that accounts for the large scale increase in the population from two and a half billion people on the planet in 1950 to eight billion people or about eight billion people in 2019. This steep reduction in malnutrition means that in 1950, 
the world was able to supply enough food to about 890 million people. Mm -hmm. But they had two and a half billion people on the planet. But by 2019, that had risen to just over seven billion people, a nearly eightfold increase, which is absolutely amazing. So what explains this impressive achievement? Answering that it must be due to higher crop yields, yep, that's a fact. Saying that the increase in, it has been combined with better uh, crop management, better crop varieties, agricultural mechanization, fertilization, irrigation, and crop protection also correctly describes the changes in the key inputs, but it still misses the fundamental explanation. Modern food production is dependent on two different kinds of energy. Can somebody tell me what that first kind of energy is? Somebody. Anybody. The sun. Okay, first energy is the sun. And that's the most obvious. But it also needs the now indispensable input of fossil fuels and the electricity produced by human beings. When asked to give a common example of our reliance on fossil fuels, inhabitants in the, in the colder parts of Europe and North America will think immediately about the natural gas that's used to heat your homes. People everywhere will point to the combustion of liquid fuels that power most of our transportation, but the modern world's most important and fundamental existential dependence on fossil fuels is their direct and indirect use in the production of our food supply. Direct use includes fuels to power field machinery, transportation of harvest and storage and processing sites and irrigation pumps. Indirect use is much broader, taking into account the fuels and electricity used to produce agricultural machinery, fertilizers, and other inputs ranging from glass and plastic sheets for greenhouse gas, uh, greenhouses to satellites that enable precision farming. This is another reason why I believe that the oil and gas industry will continue to be necessary for the foreseeable future. I also realize, and as does my company, that climate change is a serious issue, and that we as an industry need to do more to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and fugitive emissions. That's why we are planning to invest in our CCS technology at Rio Grande LNG to minimize our environmental footprint. Now I want to share with you why I also believe, uh, and why I think you should believe, uh, and that you should start considering a career in the oil and gas industry or the LNG sectors. Raise your hand, this would be an easy one. That's the first question. Raise your hand if you think that the oil and gas industry is innovative when compared to high tech or to uh, space exploration. A few hands are going up. I firmly believe that the oil and gas industry is every bit as innovative as those other industries. So let me. Take a look at history here for just a moment. Around the early 2000s, the United States was running out of natural gas. Plans were being made at that time to import liquefied natural gas from other countries around the world. And this is why a number of LNG import facilities or regasification plants were built in the U.S. in the early 2000s. These regas plants would simply receive the LNG uh, from other countries around the world and regasify it and turn it back into a natural gas, put it into pipelines, and then sell it and supply businesses, industry, commercial uses, and residential needs. However, innovation changed the game. 
George Mitchell with the Mitchell Oil Company in the 1980s, who was out of the Woodlands, Texas, which is just north of Houston, was able to combine horizontal drilling with hydraulic fracturing to extract natural gas from previously inaccessible locations, such as shale rock formations. And think about getting it out of a solid piece of rock. That's exactly what they're doing. This technology, technological breakthrough revolutionized the industry and led to the abundance of natural gas that we have here in this, in this country today. The process is highly scientific, with technicians drilling thousands of feet below the Earth's surface <coughs> and creating fractures in rock to extract natural gas and oil. The technicians that are doing this know exactly how far the fractures are extending, so I believe that it's safe and it's accurate. Importantly, hydraulic fracturing is not new. It has been around since 1948. However, what is new is the ability to be able to drill down six, seven, eight thousand feet and then be able to drill sideways two miles and know exactly how far the drill bit is extending and know exactly how far the frac hydraulic fractures are extending. So think about that. Think about the pressures that you're encountering in doing that. Also, think about the fact that the technicians that are actually doing this know exactly how far the drill bit is extending below the Earth's surface. So it's not like somebody, like this industry used to be, somebody going out and punching a hole in the ground and just saying, well, look, I hope I find gas or I hope I find oil. It's highly technical and it's very sophisticated. The drilling process is extremely scientific and it's very, in my view, very innovative. Another example is the work that my former company, BG Group, or British Gas, was doing offshore Brazil. Uh, we were uh, working approximately 155 miles offshore, drilling in 10,000 feet of water, and then drilling down another 10,000 feet below the, earth, the uh, ocean floor. So think about the pressures that you're encountering there, pressures that are great enough to be able to crush a submarine. So in my view, it's like putting someone on the moon. The technologies might be different, but the complexities of what you're talking about are there. And in my view, it's also very, very innovative to get that done. The energy industry offers challenges and excitement like I think no other. It is an industry that continuously pushes boundaries and unlocks new possibilities. So I invite you to explore the opportunities it holds and consider a rewarding career in the oil and gas or the LNG industry. Now, as I near the end of my speech, I want to provide you with a few reflections about making career choices as you consider your future. The current job market is constantly changing, and flexibility and resiliency are critical to your success. Being flexible is necessary and prudent for you to consider while developing your goals and your objectives for your career path. I'm sure your teachers are telling you to map out where you want to be in five or ten years. And that's important, and you should listen to them. But opportunities and challenges are constant. And remember that your career is a journey, and grabbing opportunities for growth and fulfillment is a must at being res and being resilient and after a setback or when facing a challenge uh, is also an important part of your journey. And I actually think your failures are the most important part of your journey. So being able to fail and get up and do it again and succeed and not get uh, put down by yourself. Being flexible and resilient is about being able, uh, being adaptable and being willing to learn even if it means stepping out of your comfort zone.
Finding the right career takes self-reflection. You need to consider what drives you. What are you good at? What do you believe in? Your answers to these important questions will help you gain or align your career with your personal goals and your talents. Remember, your career choices are a reflection of who you are today and who you want to be in the future. And finally, and I think most important uh, piece of advice that I can give you is listen to your gut. Have confidence in yourself. Have confidence in your abilities. Don't let anybody tell you what you can't do. Tell them what you want to do. And finally, a quote from a scientist that I have a lot of respect for, Albert Schweitzer, success is not the key to happiness. Happiness is the key to success. If you love what you do, you will be successful. Thank you.